Good morning. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. This morning we return to the back to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 10. We're going to look at uh, the first 24 verses of chapter 10 this morning. So it's a good chunk of our, of our text, and we'll read it within the sermon um, just to save a little bit of time. Luke 10, 1 to 24. If you've been with us the last three weeks, we've been going through a, a brief series on uh, the mission, vision, values of, of the SF Bible, of the church. And uh, just as just a remind, way of reminding, we kind of did an in-depth study of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. And we, we learned to basically base how Christ provides for the growth of his church. How does, how does Christ grow his church? How does Christ build his church? And he begins by, according to Paul in Ephesians 4, 11, that by giving gifted teachers, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, and teachers. They are all basically, they're different types of teachers of God's word. They speak God's word. And their primary task was to speak God's word to the saints. They uh, then in turn, uh, those saints are then in turn, having been equipped with the tools to speak the truth, are then to to speak that truth to one another, to other people, to people, uh, fellow Christians, or to people in the world, uh, non-Christians. And we kind of looked at that, and that's really the, the heart, the substance, the essence of of our ministry as in making disciples. And there are other things that we would teach, but the heart of it is speaking God's truth, the truth of Christ, to one another. And the question I asked this morning is, or for us to think about a little bit, is what happens uh, just when the teaching of God's word is left only in the hands of those gifted teachers? When the saints who are taught God's word, equipped with the word, uh, somehow, for whatever reason, don't think it's their job, don't think it's their task, uh, don't think it's their responsibility to speak the truths of Christ to others. And you can probably think about that and just kind of think, what will happen to a church? Uh, not just, maybe not just next week if everybody stops, uh, maybe this one week, uh, everybody stops making disciples of Christ. Uh, the church will probably survive, but uh, give it a number of uh, months, years, uh, perhaps another, a generation even. What will happen to the church when God's word is only left, the, the teaching of God's word is only left to those gifted teachers within the body of Christ. Well, you will tend, probably end up tending to have a church where there's a very clear uh, clergy laity division. First of all, that's what you're going to find. That's very natural. There's going to be a, there's a, there's a distinction already there. You might think of this, oh, there's pastors and elders in this church. Um, uh, that, and then there are the, those who are not pastors and elders, the, the rest of the body. And just like that, you think, oh, there's a clergy, and they're the, therefore uh, they, they're the ones who teach God's word, and the rest of us, well, we don't. Uh, and that's what would probably tend to happen. Uh, but then we see a lot of churches like that. There are uh, some churches where there's very clear, uh, there's a, almost a hierarchy of clergy, as well as, and then the lady, basically, uh, they, they end up basically not really studying or bo- the Bible for themselves. They basically say, well, whatever the clergy of, this, of our church denomination uh, says, well, whatever they say, that that's, that's must be what is true. They don't uh, just read the Bible for themselves, essentially. Uh, you end up with a, and what, a church that where leaves basically uh, this, where the clergy are the ones who teach, you end up basically leaving this doctrine, uh, the teaching or the study of doctrine to the professionals. Uh, and if the the professors are teaching the word of God, then what do the people of God do? If they're not speaking truths, what do they do? They're going to find something else to do. Uh, you don't become, stay in part of a church and stuff. And if you're, you know, if you're not speaking truth, you're going to do something else. And I think most likely what's going to happen is in that kind of setting, where if, if the, the, the pastors, the clergy, they're focused on teaching the word of God, then the members are going to be more concerned about the, the instead of the doctrines, the, the practice of the Christian faith. And there's nothing wrong with the practice of Christian faith. That's, that's normal. That's very important stuff. That's um, when we understand God's word, we want to live it out. We want to apply it to our lives. And while the practice of the Christian faith is important, eventually any practice that is done without an understanding of the doctrines of Christ, what do you think will happen? Well, eventually... You start realizing if you maybe not in your generation, but in the next generation, if we, our emphasis among the people is just what we do, and we teach that to our next generation, well, that it's all about what you do. You know, really, it's just where the rubber meets the road. It's, it's really 
what you do with your life, that's what matters. We've all heard that saying, and, and there's, there's some truth to that, no doubt. Especially, uh, we, we cannot live Christian lives uh, devoid of, of practice of the Christian life. Or, uh, but what happens eventually is the next generation is going to say, well, if it's just about doing these good deeds, I can do a lot of these good deeds without all that doctrine. In fact, we've survived without that doctrine. And so let's not emphasize doctrine and let's focus about what we do. And eventually, if you just focus about what you do, you're going to just realize, well, I don't need doctrine. Well, why do I even need the church? Because I can do the same things with the Red Cross. I can do the same things with my community school. I can do the same things with my, my company volunteer program. We can do all these good deeds the same way. I don't, I don't need a church. I don't need to sacrifice a Sunday or sit there and listen to some guy talk about something I'm not interested in anyways. You can see where that goes. And I, and I believe this is, the, this is what happens basically with many second generations of a church. When the church de-emphasizes doctrine, when it leaves the teaching of God's word to the clergy, the, the, the professionals, if you will. And the rest of the body does not take it upon themselves to be equipped with sound doctrine, to, to understand that this, it's important for us to understand sound doctrine. And it's important for us to teach it because when I teach it to others, I own it. It becomes mine. And I come to understand it better than just having listened to a guy preach for 45 minutes. And, and this is why all of us must be equipped with sound doctrine, and all of us must, therefore, be involved in the work of ministry that Christ calls us to. It's not, that it's not just that, well, the other people need us to do the work of the ministry. God could use anybody to do it. But part of the, us doing the work of ministry is that we're, we build ourselves up in love. We, we learn ourselves. We're blessed, too, when we pass the truth of God's word to, to other people. And today's passage in Luke reminds us of this charge, that the work of ministry really is, is what Christ calls us all to do. It's not just for the, for the clergy. It's not just for the pastors. It's not just for the elders. Speaking the truth of Christ is what we're all called to do, what all disciples of Jesus Christ are called to do. We're to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. Luke's gospel up to this point has uh, traced Jesus' Galilean ministry uh, from chapter 1 all the way up to chapter 9. And beginning in chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus began, uh, as Luke puts it, his, his journey towards Jerusalem, his death in Jerusalem particularly. He's told the 12 as much, and, and although they have difficulty comprehending it, Jesus nevertheless is heading to Jerusalem to die from Chapter 10 and on. Actually, end of chapter 9 and on. He's, uh, <clears throat> he is going to go back to be with the Father. But Jesus knows that his ministry, his ministry of the gospel, the kingdom of God, must continue. And it must continue in the hands of his disciples. We've already seen back in chapter 9 that he entrusted it to the 12, the 12 apostles, the, his select representatives on earth who would be his spokespeople to proclaim his truths to others and teach it to others. But it's not just limited to the 12. The ministry of Jesus Christ, the ministry of the gospel of the kingdom is meant for all. And we see that from basically 951 all the way through chapter 18. We see Jesus preparing his disciples, all his disciples, not just the 12, but the uh, we're going to see today the 70, uh, particularly disciples, prepare them for the ministry of the gospel when, even when he is gone. It's very interesting, kind of just of, uh, of interest that what we find here in Luke from this point all the way through chapter 18, this material is all unique to Luke. Uh, we might see kind of references, similar sounding verses here and there, but the actual, just the main chunks of text, they're all unique to Luke. We don't find them in any of the other gospels, so it's kind of a, a cool kind of thing. You, you read these stories and say, wow, if it were not for the gospel of Luke, we would not have these stories. We would not have these records of Jesus' life. In today's text, we're going to see how basically Jesus expands his ministry from the twelve to the greater number, to the greater uh, group of disciples that follow him. And their ministry in turn has been passed down to the next generation, all the way to our generation, where now it is really our ministry. Today's passage will prepare Jesus' disciples for our mission to proclaim the kingdom of God. So 
Um, that's where we're going to head today. And just, I know I've said it before, but it's always good, bear, worth repeating. Uh, we, I hear it, our Sunday school reminds teachers often teach us this, is that remember when we study narrative, we've got to keep in mind that narrative is not normative. Yeah, very good. Okay, good. All right. I see some, you know, some of you out there are awake. Narrative is not normative. You should always repeat that when you're studying the, uh, any narratives. And, and particularly even, you know, when you listen to someone preach narrative as well. It's a very important precautionary interpretive principle. Uh, and the same applies in this text. However, even having said that, we can still nevertheless glean from the text uh, general principles. General principles that are true uh, of the Christian faith that apply to disciples of Jesus back then as well as disciples of Jesus today. So uh, as we look at this text, this long text, we're going to look at four principles. Four <coughs> principles. I call them four realities, but four principles to keep in mind in our ministry to proclaim the kingdom of God. We're going to see uh, four points for realities. Let's take a look then at these four. We're going to spend the bulk of our time, about half of our time, in the first point. Okay, so just FYI, if you're thinking, man, uh, he spent so much time on point number one. That's, it's on purpose, okay. All right, the first reality is, point number one, is the expansion of kingdom ministry. The expansion of kingdom ministry. So in verse 1 to 12, we see this. We read in verse 1, now after this, now after this the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. Jesus now, you notice, is, is the Lord is sending out 70 others. So not the 12 disciples, but 70 other disciples. He sends them out in pairs to go ahead of him. He's heading towards Jerusalem in a general direction. So he's sending these 70 ahead of him, two by two, to go to the various towns, the various cities, to prepare people for his coming. There's a, a bit of a what's called a textual variant here. Some of your translations, uh, you might have heard me read 70, but some of your translations will say 72. 72, right? Some of you are like, whoa, whoa. So it is a textual variant here. That means some manuscripts have 70, some manuscripts have the word 72. Uh, <clears throat> Jesus, uh, if 70 is what it is, uh, Jesus may have been thinking of the, basically the 70 elders that Moses had appointed to help him in Numbers eleven sixteen, 16, uh, with Moses' ministry. And those 70 elders had the spirit rest upon him, them so that they began prophesying. So basically they, they were people who would help in the preaching of the, the word, of the God's word to, to the people. Uh, and they were filled with the spirit they were to, and to help Moses. Uh, and so similarly, these 70 were appointed by Jesus to speak on his behalf. So it may be that correlation. Uh, interestingly, uh, in that same passage, Numbers eleven sixteen, 16, uh, there were, there's this little weird anecdote, kind of statement in a few verses later. It says, but there were two men, uh, uh, I forgot the name, me, dad, L, dad, or something like that, who they were, were out, not in the group, but they started to have the spirit fill them. They started prophesying too. And you remember that? So, um, so in a sense, there were 72 people, 72 men filled with the spirit who spoke the word of God, uh, or, but it, technically Moses, Moses chose only 70. So maybe the 70, 72 there, that confusion from there has become, has basically been brought into the text, depending upon the, uh, the scribe who was writing it. Maybe he was uh, Jewish. He might have thought, oh, now he put down the word 70. Maybe the, somebody else reading the Septuagint version, the Greek version, might have uh, been more thinking about the 72, the, the two other people. It's all possible. Uh, I, I lean towards 70, but, uh, you know. You don't have to throw stone me for that. Okay. But I, I think that is the case, 70. So these 70 are basically, though, the main point is that they're appointed to speak on Jesus' behalf. Like the 12 who were sent out earlier back in chapter 9, verse 1 to 6, these 70 also are sent out. They're sent out in pairs, two by twos. Why two by two? Uh, most likely it's because of uh, the requirement in the law that any fact or any truth must be uh, verified by two or three witnesses. And so two by two they would go. They would tell about Jesus. Is, Jesus of Nazareth is coming, and he is the Christ. Make way. Prepare. And so they said, well, who are you to say that? Well, oh, this guy says it too. Okay. All right. That, that maybe. I'll start listening. Maybe Ecclesiastes 4 and 9 comes to mind too. Maybe that there are two are better than one. There's a great return for their, for their labor. That might be the idea as well. But, you know, Jesus could have had all these ideas because Jesus is infinite God. So, he, But uh, nevertheless, he sends them two, two by two. And Jesus gives 
uh, the 70, basically instructions for their ministry. And I want to kind of look at their instruction and draw some principles from their, their, uh, his instruction for their ministry for us today. First of all, notice uh, basically for them as well as for us today, uh, the prayer uh, that he instructs the, the, these workers, these laborers to have. So our prayer in verse 2. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus knows that the work of winning souls is going to be a, a plentiful harvest, right? It's like, it's like one, <clears throat> and there's going to be many, many souls that need, will be brought to him. And he knows that 12 is not enough. So he calls upon 70 other disciples to, uh, to do the same work of, of proclaiming the kingdom of God. But even Jesus knows that, Jesus knows that that 70 is not enough as well. 70 plus 12, that's 82 people. That's, that's a lot of people going around proclaiming the kingdom of God. But he knows that it's not enough. And so the first instruction he gives the 70, and by the way, in the, in, um, it's not quite the parallel, but in Matthew's uh, text <coughs> where he sends out the 12, this same prayer, this request, therefore send out the, uh, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out more work, send more workers, precedes the sending of the 12 as well. So this prayer he, he taught to the 12, this prayer he taught to the 70. And so he's, tr- he's trying to convey to them that, there, before the first thing you do as you go about the work of ministry is to pray, pray, and what are the things you're going to pray? What are you going to pray about? Well, pray for more workers because the harvest is plentiful. Uh, you can pray. Certainly, we can pray for uh, more missionaries, more pastors for the harvest, uh, and we can pray for. But we should pray greater than that. Just not, not just more missionaries, pastors, but pray for more Christians. God, in His wisdom, has designed it so that. All Christians are those who can speak the word of God, to proclaim the gospel, to lead people to Christ. All of us are, are capable to work as laborers in the harvest. This verse basically indicates an ever-expanding ministry from the 12 to the 70 to the future laborers that the Lord would send, would raise up for his ministry. Until the harvest is complete and it's not, yet we are to ask God to raise up more workers for the harvest. This is our prayer, even as we go about the work in ministry. Let's pray for more workers for the ministry, not just in our generation, but the generation to come, especially among our children. I, I know your parents, you know, when you're praying for the salvation of your children, you're really praying this verse. Lord, raise up more works for the harvest. May it be one of these that you've entrusted to me. Secondly, there's another aspect of instruction to the 70. is not only our prayer, but notice he tells, teaches them about our danger, our danger. Uh, verse 3, go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. He's just simply teaching them that they're going, they are going to minister in a world where there are wolves. Uh, these wolves are basically threats to, to lambs. They will eat them. They will destroy them. Uh, these 70, the disciples of Christ, will be hated, will be persecuted. Some will be martyred in the service of the Lord. And Jesus wants you to understand, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Understand, you're going to be in a dangerous position, dangerous places. And for us in America, we think, oh, no, it's real safe to be a Christian. It's the easiest thing to be a Christian. But, you know, just go to the rest of the world and you'll find that it's sometimes quite dangerous to be a Christian. You will give your life to be a Christian. And, um, you know, just, uh, you follow any Christian, you won't see it on major news, but you follow many of the Christian websites, you basically will read about Christians being killed almost every day, uh, shot, you know, almost um, having homes burned. It's, uh, it's quite prevalent around the world. Pray for our, our persecuted brothers. Uh, but there is danger for those, uh, for those who serve the Lord. Uh, thirdly, Jesus calls for an urgency, our urgency. Verse 4, he uh, says, carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. This is not really instruction basically where Jesus is like, some people interpret this and say, oh, Jesus is calling his, his servants to basically to a life of poverty, to a vow of poverty. So you're going to serve the Lord, you got to live a vow of poverty. And uh, so that's why you don't, no, don't bring no money, don't, you shouldn't have any bags, you shouldn't have any shoes. Uh, you don't, um, but the greet no one on the, on, the, on the way is kind of a clue that, oh, it's really not about poverty. But it's about don't take time to pack for your journey. Don't, take, don't stop and go and oh, get an extra money belt, go get some bag, put some stuff in your bag, you, and pack, you know, get, set up your clothes, figure out what, you know, bring an extra pair of shoes. 
don't even, <coughs> and don't stop to greet people. In the Jewish culture, to, it was a, a very, there would be a formality, a custom of greeting one another in a, a very lengthy fashion. And so whenever two people met, and so Jesus tells them, don't even greet one another along the way. Your mission is so important. This, your mission is the priority. Don't prepare. Don't take anything with you. Just, and don't greet anyone alone. Just go to the cities and tell them to get ready because the kingdom of God is coming near. He wants them to focus and prioritize the ministry. And I think we learned uh, at least at the end of uh, Luke chapter 9 even about how when he, those three uh, disciples who came in wanted to follow him, say, oh, let me do this first, let me do that first. Jesus said, no, you go everywhere and proclaim the kingdom of God. You let the dead bury the dead. Priorities. What's our priority? What's the, what's the highest priority in our life? Fourthly, uh, Jesus talks about, instructs them about our provision for ministry. Verses 5 through 7. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If, but if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking and they, what they give you. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep from moving from house to house. The disciples would basically receive provision from those who welcomed their ministry. Uh, oh, if a man of peace, really a son of peace is there, someone who is uh, open to peace uh, with uh, not only uh, with them but with God, uh, they are to basically stay there, they're to rest there, and they are to basically receive whatever that place provides for them, whatever food's given them, whatever lodging's given them. Because Jesus then states the important underlying principle here that the laborer is worthy of his wages. That his laborers, or well, the principle is true that if you're going to work, your laborer, you are worthy of getting paid for your work. And especially for the laborers of Christ, the laborers of the Lord, you're worthy of the wages that God will forgive you, God will provide. Uh, the Apostle Paul similarly wrote in 1 Corinthians 9.14 that the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. And it's because of these kind of texts that, that are the reason why many churches are, are uh, very faithful in, in putting together uh, financial support for their pastors and for the people who work for, in the church. And myself, I'm always grateful to this church. Uh, not only that uh, this church always has been very generous towards myself and uh, my family, but I appreciate because I, it is a, I love it when, because the church recognizes uh, the, the value of those who preach and teach the word of God to them. It's, a, it's just your faithfulness, your obedience to the Lord. And even when you give to the offering, much of it goes towards the support of, of our staff uh, at this church. And we really appreciate it. Thank God and praise God for you. Um, the principle here is on that, uh, that those who minister for the, on the Lord are, should depend upon God. Depend upon him. Okay, depend upon the Lord. Um, <clears throat> to provide. Lastly, Jesus reminds them of their message. And we'll spend a little bit of time here in verses 8 through 12. Uh, read five, let it, let's read these five verses. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you. And heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Jesus here uh, transitions from speaking about houses. He's been speaking about houses that might welcome them, might reject them. And now he transitions to cities, whole towns, kind of... Uh, that he says, basically, in any ministry, uh, there are going to be those, whether when, you, when, they, when these 70 go out, there's going to be those who receive them. And there will be some cities who will basically not receive them, will reject them. And he says, if the city receives you, we'll stay there, eat whatever they provide, basically, because they, they're going to welcome you. Uh, heal the sick, perform miracles, and then presumably teach the word of God. Now, but if the city, then in verse 10, he says, if the city does not receive you, so again, the same city, if they don't receive this, what you need to do, shake the dust from your feet and protest. That's the same instruction that he gave to the 12 as well, back in Luke 9. And then as, uh, when they shake the dust, it's, remember, it's, the, it's a reference to when Israelites came out of uh, Gentile territory, they would shake the dust off the feet because they won't have anything to do with unclean Gentiles, basically. It's a symbol. And so it's a, 
to shake the dust is basically to show these people who reject him that you're being, you're going to be, you're like the heathen under God's wrath, under God's judgment. This is, this is the kind of idea. But never, whether the city receives or rejects you, notice that the message is the same, right? The essential message is the same. This message is the kingdom of God has come near in verse 9 and verse 11. Whether it receives, whether it rejects, the message is still the same. And this message is the same message as Jesus' message. Recall Luke chapter 4, verse 43. But Jesus said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. For I was sent for this purpose. Remember, Jesus, when he's been going around Israel, he's made it very clear. He could do many things. He could have a... He could start a wonderful healing ministry, and everybody would, in the world would have just gone to him in Capernaum. But even though the crowd surrounded him, he says, I have to leave here. I have to go to other cities because I have to tell them and proclaim to them the kingdom of God. For I was sent for this purpose. He knows that there are going to be people who seek him because they have physical ailments. They have demons that need casting out. That they have, uh, that they have like uh, some kind of life, people who are dying but there's a lot of people out there who are not facing those things. And they're not going to come and seek out Jesus. So Jesus goes to them and he proclaims to them the kingdom of God. It was, he, it was what, exactly what he sent the 12 to proclaim the kingdom of God in Luke 9.2. And he tells the one who would follow him in Luke 9.60 that the pro, their priority is to proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. The message of the kingdom of God basically is the announcement of, the, of, the, of a coming messianic king who will reign over this future earthly kingdom. It's, it's the fulfillment of the, of the Davidic covenant. It's the fulfillment of, of Daniel chapter 7. The son of man who would be given dominion and kingdom. Who would who sit on a throne. Who the, all the nations of the earth would go and to serve him every na, na, uh, nation, tongue, and tribe. And this king is coming. And this part of the message is that because this king is coming... He's to establish his kingdom, it is there's an invitation to the listener to become a citizen of this kingdom, to become a part of this kingdom, and how they can do be a part of that kingdom. And since Jesus is the messianic king of this kingdom, these 70, the 12, and we ourselves can proclaim that the kingdom of God has come near. Because when Jesus came near, when he became, when he took on flesh, Jesus, the Son of God, came near to us, to mankind. It's the first, in a sense, the first fulfillment of the, of the promise. It's that first, uh, be, it's the beginnings of the fulfillment of all the kingdom promises. Though yet, at this point, the kingdom of God, as an earthly kingdom, is still to be fulfilled in the future. But when he came in the flesh, the kingdom of God came near. In fact, it's just interesting that uh, the, the word coming near is a, is a perfect tense. It's, that, it's this idea that something has happened in the past that has continues on to the present. It has a continuing effect. And that's the idea is that Jesus, he says the kingdom of God has come near. Why? Because the Son of God has taken on human flesh. And from that point on, he is near. He's come near. And Jesus is that mess messianic king. What's really cool is later on in Luke 17, 21, when the Pharisees asked Jesus about when the kingdom would come, they were all concerned. He answered that the kingdom of God is in your midst. And he's answering this to Pharisees, so they're not believers, right? So it's not, oh, some people say, oh, it's the kingdom of God in your hearts. Okay? Some people hold that view, okay? But I hold the view that the kingdom of God is basically the presence of the king. That the kingdom of God is the presence of the king. When he says the kingdom of God is in your midst, well, it's because... The king is in your midst. And when the kingdom of God has come near, it is that the king has, has come in the flesh. And he has revealed himself to mankind. So that through what he will do on the cross, all who believe upon him, all who bow the knee to him, all who repent and believe in him, can become a part of that kingdom. The proclamation of the kingdom calls for that one response. We see it in Mark 1, 14, 15. Now after John had been taken custody, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry, by the way. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the exact same phrase that we find here in Luke. The kingdom of God is at hand. He already says it at the beginning of his ministry. Repent and believe in the gospel because 
Jesus Christ is the message, the Son of God, who's taken on the Word of God, who took on human flesh. And the response is to repent and believe. If Jesus is the King, then all must repent of the rebellion against the King. We just simply say repent of our sins. But really, what is sin but rebellion against our King? And what do we do? We're to believe, we're to receive the King's provision of salvation by faith. And his provision, of course, is his death on the cross. Those who reject the King will one day face his judgment. And in comparison, uh, according to verse 12, in comparison to Sodom, who was judged for her sexual immorality in, in Genesis 18, you recall, those who reject the king, Jesus says, are going to have it much worse. So there's a warning here. Don't reject the king. If there's anyone here who does not know yet Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, maybe you're considering him. You're considering whether he's who he is and, and what he's about. As you come to understand who he is, that he is the king, he's the messi- messianic king, he's the son of God who took on flesh to die on the cross for your sins. As you understand that, don't reject that message. Don't say, oh, I don't need, I'm a good person. Don't reject this, oh, oh that's just myth, I don't believe that. Don't, don't reject it because there is judgment. When the king comes again, there will be a judgment for that. And you can say, I don't believe it all you want. But it's not that I say it, but it's the word of God says it. Jesus said it in his word is recorded for us. Repent and believe in the gospel. From these verses, verses 1 through 12, we see basically that Jesus' ministry is expanded not only to the 12 but to the 70. And by inference from the text, the ministry of Jesus expands to other workers for the harvest, including workers in our day, ourselves. And while our setting is different from ancient Israel, and ministry for us looks quite different from the ministry of the, of the 12 and of the 70 in their days, nevertheless, our prayer, our dangers, our urgency, our provision, as well as our message remain the same. Let us be, so let us be faithful disciple makers of Christ. We move on. In the last run, whatever time we have left, we're going to cover these uh, three other uh, realities to keep in mind in our ministry of kingdom proclamation. And that second one is rejection in the kingdom ministry. Jesus already alluded to this, but he continues that theme of judgment from verse 12 now into verses 13 to 16. He mentions specific cities that are under judgment. Verse 13 to, 14, 13 to 15 we read, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which concurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon and the judgment then for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted in heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. Jesus mentions three Galilean cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, all three north of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum was significant because that was where Jesus had his headquarters throughout much of his Galilean ministry. Uh, Jesus had, and although Jesus had performed miracles and taught there, apparently these cities did not respond with repentance. Jesus condemns Chorus and Bethsaida basically for their stubbornness. They didn't repent, even though he says, if the same things happened to you, that would have happened in Tyre and Sidon, which basically are, are two Gentile cities who are not even thinking about the Messiah. If, the, if, the, if I performed the same miracles there, Jesus says, they would have repented long ago. But not you, Bethsaida, not you, Chorazin. Your stubbornness, your stiff-neckedness is basically what's keeping you, and you're going to face a worse judgment because of their exposure to Christ. The rejection of him is greater, will garner a greater judgment. Capernaum, in contrast, is condemned for a different thing. Capernaum condemned for her pride. You will not be exalted to heaven. There's <coughs> but instead, you will go to Hades. The, the wording here is very um, reminiscent of Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13 to 15. There where it speaks of the same words, you will not be exalted to heaven. And said, so you, you will go brought down to Hades. is spoken of the king of Babylon. And remember, well, I was going to say you remember. But those of you, yeah, you remember. You could, some of you remember when I preached Isaiah 14. That that passage is also, uh, many believe that it's speaking about Satan. About Satan's uh, judgment. Satan, too, wanted to exalt himself to have, in heaven, but instead he would be brought down to Hades because of his pride. 
But Capernaum's rejection, just like Satan's, leads to judgment. And the judgment is to be cast down to Hades. Capernaum, most likely by her, because of her proximity to having Jesus' ministry headquartered there, probably thought they were, uh, or, you know, probably thought they were saved by association. That's kind of a very common thing. We don't normally use that phrase, but saved by association, you know. Instead of, uh, and uh, they, they thought that, well, because Jesus, he's, he's, here, he's right here in town. We must be special. We must have a special relationship. Uh, and though, therefore, we, and they thought they might be saved already. But instead, he says, they're going to go down to Hades. Hades, what is Hades? Hades is, in some places, it just refers to the place of death. If people die, they, they go to the Hades. But there's also aspects of Hades that are equivalent to what we might call as hell. A place where there is torment, a place where there's agony and flames. And in fact, the only other time that Hades is used in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 16, 23, and 24, we find that Hades there is used as a, referred to as a place of torment, agony, and flames. Much like we would use the term hell today. So here's a healthy warning to all of us who would ever think that we're, we're saved by association. You know, and, I, and I hope that none of you are out there like this. I think we've proclaimed it enough, but there's always a danger. Some of you might. Actually, I think the greatest danger is among our children. The children who grew up in this church. They say, well, I've, I've attended. And you think that maybe you're, you're saved because you grew up in a Christian family. Or you think you're saved because I went to church for so many years. I, I know the Bible better than pastor does. And you go, you know, that's, that's pretty good. But don't think that just because you have association to a Christian family or attendance to a Christian church makes you a Christian. Only Jesus Christ saves. There must be, and you too, no matter how uh, good you might think you are, you must come to a place of recognizing your sinfulness and repent of your sin before a holy God and come and receive him as Savior and King. Since just as some rejected Jesus, so some will reject his messengers. Jesus explains in verse 16, the one who listens to you listens to me, but the one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. If you listen, uh, the 70 are sent out as Jesus' messenger. And he, Jesus tells them, if they listen to you, they're listening to me. If they reject you, they're re they rejecting me. It's encouragement. Those who go out on behalf of Jesus are the representatives of Jesus. Our message is not our message. It's Jesus' message. And whatever we speak about Jesus, it's what Jesus has revealed to us. We, not, we should not take it personally when, when we're rejected for the gospel because we're, uh, we hold to the Christian faith. We're simply ambassadors for Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20. We're his representatives. We make no apology. We should not be ashamed. We're, we belong to Christ. And if we're faithful to our mission, then the world's rejection of us is simply a reminder that they reject Christ. It's not a problem with you. It's a problem with Christ that they have. And Christ will take care of that when his kingdom comes. And the third reality we learn in this text is the joy in kingdom ministry. You need to have joy in kingdom ministry. Understand this rejection. That's kind of scary. I don't know, nobody wants to be rejected. It's one of the greatest. That's why, uh, you know, uh, some of us just get frozen when it comes to social situations or even asking for things. Asking, you know, where you say, oh, man. You know, I used to, uh, uh, I used to know a guy who, would, who hated asking questions of asking permission because it might just be No. But as my wise father once told me, you know, if you never ask, the answer is always no. So you got to ask. And you ask, and sometimes it will be no. You get those rejections, but sometimes there will be the yeses. And I'm glad there are those yeses in life. And there are yeses in the ministry. And there is a, but those yeses are really, we might think that's the joy, and that's where joy in kingdom ministry comes. We see that. We, and there is some joy in that, but it's not all. The, it's not the ultimate joy we have in ministry. Look at verses 17 to 20. In verses 17 to 19, the 70 returned with joy. So they went out and they came back. Luke doesn't tell us anything about what they exactly happened on the road, but they returned with joy, saying, "Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name." And he said to them, "I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you." Wow. So they the 70 go out, they return with joy, they're excited. They're excited because they went and proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, people respond, they heal people and feel healed. But they said, but you know what, even the demons start responding to us. 
That's how cool it was. Demons were subject to us. We could cast out demons. It was an amazing success from, a, from, from their standpoint. And, and Jesus responds to the report with a, basically an amazing statement about the fall of Satan. He says, I saw or I was watching Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And this, is, this verse is, is, uh, is a, um, debated as far as how it's interpreted. There's two primary ways that it could be taken, whether it's as a, Jesus simply stating as a historical fact that he himself had seen uh, Satan fall from heaven, you know, when Satan was cast out of heaven uh, in his rebellion. So he saw it so there, yeah, then, so he's basically saying that's why uh, he's not surprised these disciples uh, he's telling me, I'm not surprised by what happened because, well, you know, I was there, I saw it, uh, something to that effect, because he has authority over Satan. He was there when he saw Satan kicked out. Or secondly, it could be interpreted as a prophetic vision, that Jesus is explaining the impact of the 70s effect over their demons. In Jewish tradition then, there was those who expected, they expected a final conflict between God and Satan, that when, and that would lead to Satan's defeat. And in this case, the, the the prophetic vision is that the disciples' activity in casting out demons was basically a, a, pre, a, a preview, a precursor of the destruction of Satan that awaited him ultimately when Jesus would die upon the cross. Both views, by the way, are possible. You can hold to both views. Uh, the, the text will allow for it. Um, I think I, I lean a little bit towards the second view I, uh, mainly just because of the, of the tense of the verb. I, I don't have time to go into those kind of, you know nitty-gritty Greek, but just, I take the second view. I think it's a prophetic vision that Jesus is saying, uh, what you guys did out there is, a, is a, just a, a, a precursor of the ultimate destruction that's going to take place of, for, to, to Satan uh, when I die on the cross. But nevertheless, Jesus reminds the 70 that their authority and their power come from him, uh, thus explaining their success in ministry. It's a reminder to us even of our, the reason for our success in ministry it's always going to be because of Jesus, not because of ourselves. And though we will experience, we may experience success, we may experience great success even, we must keep in mind that it's not because of us, it's because of Jesus. And when we experience success in ministry, we, we find there, there's, a, there's joy in that, right? When people come to Christ, Jesus says that there's great joy in heaven, right, when one comes to know the Lord. And so there is that celebration of that, even on earth as we People come to know Jesus or to do something uh, great for the Lord. You can be excited about it. You can rejoice about that. But Jesus tells his disciples here. He, he corrects their perspective a little bit by telling them there's a, there's a greater reason for joy in ministry. As you go about doing kingdom ministry, there's a, there's a greater reason to rejoice. Verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Here's the greater reason for joy. Basically that our names are recorded in heaven. That we have a place in the kingdom of God. That we know the salvation of the Lord. That our sins have been forgiven. That we know we'll have eternal life with Jesus. These are the constant reasons for joy as we go about the ministry of proclaiming the kingdom. These are the reasons. Because it, it's not to say that we don't rejoice over success. We can when that happens. But there's always this greater reason for joy. And this is just simply practical, practical wisdom that Jesus is giving his disciples. Because why? Because we know just from, even from the Old Testament, but we know just from our human experience that there are many faithful ministers, uh, churches, missionaries, preachers, pastors, prophets that have faithfully taught God's word, spoke God's word, but no one responded to it. Right? And that's not because they were failures. It's not because, oh, they're a failure because they preached the gospel all across the nation, but no one believed. They preached the gospel all across the nation. Everyone got to hear it. The fact that no one believed, it's because of their own sin. But there will be times that, and, and when, there is no, when there's no visible outward success, Jesus reminds his kingdom servants that they, you still have the joy of knowing that your name is recorded in heaven. And that's a great joy. I mean, and, and that's just kind of, I find that very encouraging just for all of life's trials, all of life's sorrows, right? It's very pastoral that Jesus does this. He knows that there's going to be disappointments in ministry. And all of us face them. All of us. 
Sometimes you want to just quit. I don't want to go to church anymore. I'm tired. It's difficult sometimes discipling somebody, counseling someone, working with people. It's hard. I don't like that. Jesus says, you know, you might not find joy in that particular ministry at this time. You might not find success in that. But no, find joy in this. Your name is recorded in heaven. And how did your name get recorded in heaven? Because Jesus came and died for you. And that, and that just motivation for me. Like, oh, I, I can't stop now. I, I gotta, I, what was me if I stopped telling people about Jesus? Because other people can have a chance to be having their name recorded too. All right. Lastly, fourth final uh, reality, keep in mind as we claim the kingdom is this, the key to kingdom ministry. I, just, I, I debate about what to call this, the privilege, the revelation. No, I'll just call it the key to kingdom ministry. Let's read verse 21 to 24. At the very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. What's, uh, again, what's neat about Luke and what's neat about this verse is that this is the only place in all of, the, all of the Gospels where we see Jesus rejoicing, explicitly rejoicing. Obviously, he rejoiced at other times. But here we actually say that Jesus rejoiced. It's kind of cool. It's like, it just, it's one of those nerdy things. It's just like, you know, that Jesus wept. Jesus rejoiced. You know, that's this verse, okay. The, <clears throat> the report of the 70 basically caused Jesus to break out in spirit-filled joy. And he praises God. And he, why does he praise God? Because he praises God that God has revealed the truth to the people who heard. And notice, he begins, actually says that he praises God because God hid the truth, first of all, from the wise and intelligent. He hid it. These are a reference to the religious leaders of, the, of Israel in that day. And instead, God revealed the truth to infants, those who were basically the religiously untrained people, the disciples, the, the people of the cities, the average everyday men and women of the streets. God revealed the truth to them. Verse 22, God, in fact, had given the authority to reveal the truth not only to, uh, to his son as well. So not only did God the Father reveal the truth and Jesus praised him for that, but Jesus recognizes by knowledge that God has given that same authority to reveal the truth to Jesus himself. Because no one knows the Father except the Son, and no, one, and, and no one knows the Son except the Father, right, as well. But notice it says, Jesus at the end of verse 22 says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. See, the key <clears throat> to being revealed the truth is, is God, or to come into salvation or the success in ministry, or people actually, how people come to faith in Christ, is that God has to reveal it to them. God reveals the truth to them. And that revelation of truth, not only God's word, but he's given that to the son. The son and whoever he wills to believe. Because the son reveals the father. Uh, John 1.18, we read this in a call to which no one's seen God any time. The only begotten God. But God who is, in the bosom, uh, who is in the bosom of the father, he has explained him. See, Jesus has explained God. He's the revelation of God. He, he's, he, because he knows God. He's his son. And Jesus tells his disciples, he turns to his disciples privately and tells them that they have the great privilege of basically seeing and hearing in person God's son. The prophets and the kings, the Old Testament, they all look forward to the Messiah. They never saw him. Disciples were privileged to, were, instead were privileged to both see and hear Jesus Christ when he walked on earth. It was their privilege to represent him in the world. It was a, because he, Jesus, is the key. He himself is the, is the, is the re, one who reveals the Father to the world. He's the, the salvation is through Christ alone. He's the key to our ministry. And the Today, we are, not, we are like the prophets and kings. We, we've not seen or heard Jesus in person. But in contrast, we, we have the great joy and privilege because of the word of God to, to he, read for ourselves 
what the eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ saw and heard themselves. We get to hear it for ourselves. And the spirit of God and Jesus Christ himself reveals the truth to us. And it's our great privilege to tell others about him, about this key that is Jesus Christ. Anyways, we, um, and simply just to conclude then with this reminder that the next generation just depends upon our generation. They depend upon our generation to understand the doctrines of Jesus Christ and to communicate those doctrines to them clearly. Proclaiming the kingdom of God is not just the work of the pastors and teachers. It's not the missionaries. Proclaiming the kingdom of God is the responsibility of all of us. It's been handed down to us, to the 12, to the 70, to the laborers of the harvest, which include you and me. Yes, there will be times of rejection, but let us nevertheless be faithful to do it. Let us, because why? Because our joy is in that we, and privilege, is that we know Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. Our names are written in heaven because of Christ. How can we not share this good news with our next generation? Let us teach them the doctrines of Christ so that they would come to saving knowledge and faith in Jesus Christ. And, yes, teach them how to live in light of that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and these truths. And may you continue to shape and mold your church through the ministry of, of the saints here in this body. Cause us to be faithful to, to not just... Um, uh, not just uh, be content to, to, uh, to do good deeds, but cause us to strive to understand sound doctrine, biblical doctrines, so that that would cause us to, under, to drive us to, to proclaim these truths and equip us to proclaim these truths to others. And Father, we pray that as we do so, that you would, that you would draw people to yourself, draw our next generation to yourself, raise up more workers for the harvest, Workers who will love you with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. They will love your word. They will love Jesus Christ. And they will themselves will take on uh, the mantle when we step off of this world to, to tell the next generation after them about who Christ is and what he's done. Lord, continue to build your church through your saints. Continue to cause the name of Jesus Christ to be proclaimed as, we, as your church proclaims the coming kingdom of God, and of the king who has already come and what he's done to make the way possible for everyone who believes to enter into that kingdom. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.